Coming up, it's our handy-dandy guide to election day. We take you through all the questions on your ballot, from judges to pot. And if you've already voted, we look at the key issues and trends to pay attention to on election night. Plus, there's more than voting going on. We pick apart our week's biggest headlines. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of AARP Kansas City, RSM, Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gorley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Hello and welcome, I'm Nick Haynes. Fasten your seatbelt, put your tray table in the upright position. We're taking you on a whirlwind trip through those pesky questions on your ballot. If you've already voted, stay with us for the trends you should be watching out for on election night. And before we land this plane, we'll dissect some of the headlines uh, we missed. Our cabin crew on this flight leading KCUR's election night coverage, Brian Ellison. Heading up the call newspaper, Eric Wesson, former Kansas City Star City Hall reporter, now freelance writer Lynn Horsley, and the star's Dave Helling. Now, the granddaddy of all local election issues is whether Missouri should legalize recreational marijuana. But what are we to make this week of the news that some of our area's biggest progressive groups are now coming out against it? The NAACP and Pro-Choice Missouri, one of the state's largest abortion rights groups, are now telling Missourians to vote no. Eric, what is their main objection? Well, I said vote no, too, and my objection with it was that it was very vague in what they were going to be able to do. Uh, for example, expunging records. How far back are you going to go to expunge those records? And remember now, it's still a federal offense. It's not uh, with the feds yet. Also, uh, the, pro the process with black businesses being a part of that is going to be done with a lottery system. So you're going to have companies come over from all over the country to try to be a part of the business aspect of There it. were about four objections there. Brian, you can also, <laughs> though, there is still fines in place. This is not, if this passes, you can do whatever you like. If you smoke weed in a public place, there's $100 fine. So there are limitations. There's also the reality that uh, it only applies to adults 21 and over, so that uh, 18 to 20 demographic that might be some of the prime customers otherwise will not, uh, will not be off the hook. Look, I think the, the, the supporters of this amendment, Nick, would say that this might be the only chance to have the kind of bipartisan support for a measure that this one seems to have attracted from a, a core group of what you might call moderate Republicans along with a, a cross-section of progressive Democrats. The question is, does it go far enough? And as Eric said, uh, there's a lot of folks who say but, no. But if it passes, will it be like medical marijuana day, which took actually two years to ever get implemented? Are we going to be waiting years no, for this to happen? it won't take two years, in part because we've done medical marijuana and so people understand how to proceed it may take some time to sort of sort out completely who is licensed and who isn't the groups on the left who oppose this Nick typically oppose it for the technical reasons that Eric talked about how the licenses are to be distributed how it's going to work whether it belongs in the Constitution the important thing to remember there is it can't be changed easily if there are problems folks on the right oppose it because they just don't like marijuana they think it's dangerous harmful to folks but the vast majority of people in the middle who may decide this issue seem to, based on polling, like the idea of legal recreation. But if it fails, though, will we just see another issue come back on the ballot with a couple of word changes, and we'll see it next year, for instance, Lynn? 
Well, I don't know. They had to get a lot of signatures. They also, the legislature could do this if they could get their act together, and I think some people th think that would be the way to go. Now, the biggest issue on the Kansas ballot is not a constitutional amendment, but the men and women who wear a black judge's robe never before. Have Kansas voters been asked to decide the fate of so large a number of Kansas Supreme Court justices? Six of the seven members of the court are up for a retention vote, and they're nervous. I think this is also the first time we've seen campaign ads try to justify their work. Our Kansas Supreme Court is different, fair and impartial. The court upholds our Constitution. When the legislature and governor refused to fund schools, the court stepped in. When partisan politicians go too far, these justices protect our freedoms. With all the chaos in our country, it's one place where politics doesn't rule the day. Never before has a judge lost a retention vote, but if that were to happen, Dave, uh, what would happen then? Would they be booted off the court immediately? No, no. According to the Constitution, they would serve out the remainder of their term, which ends uh, early in January, Nick, although there is a provision that says they can continue to serve even past that date if their replacement has not been picked. Now, as you know, in Kansas, there's a formal system for replacing or, or, or rather putting judges on the bench that involves the governor, a special commission, a screening, three nominees go to the governor, he or she picks one. And so it might take longer than January to get that process done, and in that case, those who are booted would stay. But you point out an important thing. It's never happened before. And, uh, you know, based on the uh, folks I've talked with, they don't expect it to happen. This again. issue is not going away, though, Brian. I see that, for instance, Chris Kobach, who's running as a Republican for Attorney General, says we want to elect uh, Supreme Court judges if I become the Attorney General. And also Derek Schmidt, the, attorney, uh, the Republican candidate for governor, has also said something similar. So this is going to continue on regardless of what happens with this retention For vote. sure. It's not the beginning of a movement, uh, but it's certainly part of a, a continuation of a populist idea that we should somehow have more control in the hands of voters over long-standing institutions. I think, Nick, it's a sign of lack of trust in uh, the, the political system. And you know, as, as Dave points out, not only has no one ever uh, has voters of Kansas never done this before, but the reality is the same voters of Kansas just went to the polls on the, the primary issue that the folks wanting to oust these justices are concerned about, which is abortion rights. Uh, those voters just in August said, we agree with those judges about this issue. I don't see the same uh, electorate ousting them now. No, no certainty, though, that those same voters will go to the polls right. next week. And, and just quickly, of the six judges on the ballot in Kansas, three of them played no role in the abortion decision. They weren't on the court at the time that the case was taken up and the opinion issued, of the three remaining judges, two were in the majority on the abortion question, but a third, Caleb Stagall, was actually the lone dissent but in that case. But can voters distinguish between all those judges well, and their minds? Well, reporters can, can't they? <laughs> well, there are also two con constitutional amendments on the ballot in Kansas. Neither of them are attracting the kind of attention the abortion amendment received last August. The first called Amendment 1 would rein in the power of the Kansas governor if approved lawmakers can overturn an executive order or a regulation coming from the governor's office by a simple vote. So what's behind this? We know, for instance, Governor Kelly became the first governor in the nation to issue an order shutting down schools statewide at the start of the pandemic. If this amendment were in place then, would lawmakers have been able to block that, Brian? Uh, they, yes, they very well could have. And we don't really know what the limits of this, uh, this law might be, but we certainly think that there's regulations that they would like to rein in on when there's a Democrat in the governor's office. What other examples might there be, Lynn? You know, I don't know. I think the mask mandate was unpopular. And, I, you know, I think this is just a real partisan divide. Executives 
governors issue rules all the time. COVID is the basis for this discussion, but governors issue rules all the time. And what the legislature wants to do, Republicans, is overturn those regulations with a simple majority vote. And what the governor has said is, no, pass a law. And if you do that, I can veto it. And then you need a two-thirds majority to override. And that's the crux of the issue. Here. Now, given all the problems in America and here locally, one of the biggest questions on your mind may not be how we pick our local sheriffs. But next week, Kansans are being asked to enshrine into the Constitution an amendment requiring Kansas sheriffs be elected. Why is this even on the ballot, Lynn? You know, I don't know, Dave, you Cal might... Calvin Hayden, <laughs> Hayden, the sheriff in Johnson County. There was a Johnson County Charter Review Commission recently that discussed the idea of appointing the sheriff, in part because the people, the sort of moderate Republicans in Johnson County, are not fond of Calvin Hayden in any way. And so he and others have engineered this proposal for the ballot that would, in essence, enshrine the idea that he and other sheriffs where are sheriffs that are currently elected, they would have to continue to be elected. Now, law enforcement is also on the ballot in Missouri. Voters in the Show Me State are being asked to require the city of Kansas City spend at least 25% of its revenue on its police department. Mayor Lucas claims the city already regularly spends more than 25% of its cash on the KCPD. If that's the case, why, Eric, is he so worried and threatening to fight this in court if it passes? Because... You, there's no accountability for the 20% that you give them, so there's still no accountability for the 25%. Uh, today, they just settled another $5 million lawsuit for a wrongful death in Terrence Bridges' case. So when we're giving them all of this money, what exactly are they doing with it? Why is crime still high? Why is the uh, conviction rate or people getting arrested for these crimes still so high? If it's approved, though, Lynn, what kind of changes might take place? Might it mean more police officers, a shorter wait time when you call 911? Uh, there's no guarantee of that, and that's why the city is so opposed to this. There's nothing in the ballot language that says if we give this additional funding to the police department that they have to spend any of it on new officers or more effective crime fighting. Is it just Kansas City voters who decide this, Brian, or will people in Cape Girardeau and other yes. parts of uh, Missouri be deciding this too? That's exactly right. Uh, in fact, right now, the latest poll from Emerson College says that 44% of voters statewide support the measure, 22% oppose it. That's more than a third of voters who don't know how they're going to vote. That same poll, Nick, said that 47% of voters have little or no knowledge of right. what the re resolution is even about. Right. And you know what? Their new budget that they're proposing, the outline, the draft of the new budget, calls for 29% of the city's general revenue fund, an increase of 9% of what they're getting right and, and now. And just so voters know, this amendment, if it passes, will not limit the increase to 25% in Kansas City. Right. There is no number. Next year, the legislature could convene and say, you know what, we think it should be 75%. And under this proposal, if it passes, that would be legal and the city would have absolutely no recourse. It's an important thing to pay attention to. Now, just as Kansans might be surprised to learn they're having to decide the fate of local sheriffs on their ballot, Missouri voters may be equally perplexed to learn that the National Guard is on the ballot in their state. Amendment 5 would remove the National Guard from under the Department of Public Safety and elevate it into its own department that would answer directly to the governor. That sounds reasonable, but what do I need to know before I cast my ballot on that question or to decide to leave it blank because I don't quite understand it, Brian? Well, uh, I don't quite understand it either, Nick. Uh, it, it's 
certainly seems like a bureaucratic uh, shuffle rather than a major philosophy change. Remember, the head of the National Guard in Missouri is already appointed by the governor, even though they're in a different department. There was an effort in a recent session of the legislature to create a Missouri militia. And uh, it was uh, proposed by conservative lawmakers who think that the governor should be able to control troops. And so this is sort of an outcropping of that. Let's take the Missouri National Guard out of the control of the Department of Public Safety, put it under the governor's leadership, and uh, that's the subtext to this election. No, we ask a lot of voters when they head to the ballot box, and that's no more true than Amendment 1 on the Missouri ballot that asks you whether you want to loosen state laws to give the state treasurer more choices in where to invest the state's money. You'll see lots of language on this ballot question about things like securities and municipal bonds, but as most of us are not accountants, economists, or financial planners, will the world come to an end if I vote yes, no, or leave the question blank? I don't think you have to worry about uh, an apocalyptic outcome should this, uh, should this <laughs> okay. pass, Nick. I, I, and That's I good also, to know. I also don't think you have to worry about the treasurer being able to take a couple hundred million dollars of state funds and put it on red down at the Ameristar. Right? It's, a, <laughs> it's a fairly narrow expansion of what the treasurer is allowed to do. Uh, estimates are that it will uh, enable the state to profit a bit more. This is a flexibility that's not unheard of in other states. Now, if you thought that was enough to decide, if you're in Missouri, you're also going to see a long question asking you whether there should be a constitutional convention to amend and update the state's constitution. I'm even struggling with what on earth that means. Help us out, Dave. If I vote yes, what happens? Well, uh, every 20 years, the Missouri Constitution requires voters to decide this question. That's why it's on the ballot. If yes prevails, which it never has, but if it does, then the governor has a certain amount of time to appoint delegates from every Senate district, one Republican and one Democrat, basically, which is 68 people, and then 15 people at large. They all get in a room, and they can do anything they want to the Constitution, change an amendment, take things up, propose an entirely new document, do nothing at all, and then that is presented to voters at a later date so they don't get to enact it on their own, but that's how the procedure would work. Now, closer to home, Kansas City voters will be asked to make huge new investments in the city's infrastructure, housing, and public buildings. Actually, it's two separate questions. A $50 million ask for affordable housing, and the remainder going to fix up and repair everything from public swimming pools and fountains to the convention spaces at Bartle Hall. But, Eric, didn't President Joe Biden come to Kansas City back in December to promise hundreds of millions of dollars for infrastructure projects? And didn't voters in Kansas City already approve $800 million for these kinds of projects a few years ago when Sly James was mayor? So what happened to all that cash? Uh, who knows? And absolutely, <laughs> you are correct. We, we have voted on those issues before. But I think this time the money is supposed to be earmarked specifically for those areas. And I think before it was those were things that were on the ballot to help sell them. But I don't know if the money even went there Lynn. or not. Well, Kansas City has billions of dollars of deferred maintenance needs, and so they need every federal dollar they can get. They, that $800 million that was approved several years ago really was for roads, flood control, the animal shelter, and other city buildings. This is more for parks, community centers, Bartle Hall, and then the affordable housing, which obviously is a really thorny issue in Kansas City right now. You know, they say this is a bond election. It's not going to cost you anything. So is this just free money? It well, isn't free money. Other debt that the city's been paying on will roll off. So this is a no-tax increase campaign, which is a very nice slogan to have. However, if voters uh, um, reject it, 
they might even see their taxes go down a little bit. It's a no-tax decrease plan. It, as well, yes, right? I will say um, it does require a supermajority, 57 percent, and um, that's more than just the simple majority. The other thing to keep in mind is because this is roll-off of existing debt, all of the money will not be available at first. It's 175 million dollars, Nick, but over five years. The first year, only $35 million is available for all of these project, uh, projects, including housing. So the idea that somehow there will be $50 million pushed into the housing fund the first year, voters should know that will not be the case. They can decide the merits in other ways. Let's remember, even though we're focused on this election right now, Mayor Quinton Lucas, as we turn into a brand new year, will be facing re-election. It's interesting why he's going for this bond election right now, asking for more money uh, when he's going to be asking for the vote in just a few months. Because if you look at the long run of things, then you're looking at the fact that they have this five-year plan that they're going to eliminate uh, houselessness, and they've got to put money into a housing project and this affordable housing. You've got the KC tenants in his ear hollering and screaming that uh, $1,200 a month is not affordable. So he's catering to that base at the same time he's trying to make his plan work with the five-year I agree, and these are important projects. I think there's also a scheduling issue, and if it depends on what year you put geo bonds on the ballot, you could have uh, an the, even the, higher. The goes yeah, up, yeah, I think it's if it's on next year, you would need an even bigger supermajority well, of approval. Plus, next year you're competing with the mayor's election. No mayor wants to run around saying "vote for me" and vote for higher taxes. <laughs> and second, the baseball stadium may also be on the ballot next year, and that would collide with this money. So I think they want to get this off the deck so that that comes up. Now this is our last show before election day, Brian. Let's start with you. What is the biggest race trend or issue you will be most focused on as the results come in Tuesday? I think it's what are we going to learn from those big, high-profile statewide races in Kansas. Governor Laura Kelly facing Attorney General Derek Schmidt. Uh, Laura Kelly, by all rights, uh, should have a, a strong case for re-election after uh, some big successes she can point to. Similarly, in the Attorney General race, uh, Chris Kobach versus Chris Mann. Uh, if, if Republicans triumph in those elections, it shows that Kansas is sort of reverting to the, the fairly conservative, consistently reliably conservative state that we thought it was. If the Democrats triumph, it shows us that maybe the profile of Kansas is changing and it's more responsive to, uh, to the local needs of the state. The biggest race trend or issue Eric Wesson will be watching on election night Tuesday is blank. Jackson County Executive. Yes. Whether Frank White is going to hold that down without really campaigning for it, uh, that's going to be interesting to see because it's like, where's he at? And it, if he does win, it'll show the power of celebrity. It would show the power of celebrity, and it would also be a feather in Freedom's hat as well because they're endorsing him, and they'll do most of the ground game work for him. But that'll be really interesting to watch. And the biggest issue trend for uh, Lynn Horsley on election night is I'm blank. just going to be watching for threats to democracy. Mm. Uh, my fear about election integrity is not fraud. It's sore losers. Well, it's interesting you say that because, um, for instance, there was another component we know for this election is the fact that we have in Missouri, you have to, as part of a new law, uh, show a photo ID. You can't just show a utility bill or the little mailing, uh, mailing election card that you get through the mail before election day. But I, I've not heard of people being, uh, sh you know, thrown out of election stations with the early voting. Is that become a non-issue? I've not heard a lot about that either. And I do think the early advance voting, finally in Missouri, 
is is quite an, an attractive um, benefit to that law. What is the, the trend? Obviously, I'm with Eric. The Jackson County executive race is critical in part because we already mentioned baseball next year and football, whatever happens to the sports complex. But the jail is under construction. It's already well over budget by millions of dollars. Now there are problems with coordinating with Kansas City to help build that jail. Property appraisals will hit the fan next year, and that may not go well based on early information. So the next Jackson County executive has an extraordinarily full plate. And who wins that race will have a big impact on the way people vote. We always have the impression, of course, this is going to be election night. We've gone through all of this, and we're going to get all of the results. You're leading uh, KCUR's election night coverage. Couldn't this go on for days? It could be in a whole election week, Brian. It absolutely could. In fact, we should count on it. Uh, the, the reality is that we do not live in a time where we can go to bed Tuesday night knowing who our next round of elected officials is going to be. And in fact, uh, the, there are cases, there uh, are, are certainly races that may be decided in court. We will not almost certainly no control of the United States Senate for days or maybe weeks if there's runoff elections in other states. God forbid we could be still looking at this election as they start the next presidential election. It will just never well, stop. Hey, trust me, Nick, the next election for president starts the day after okay. November 8th. Now, as many of our viewers have already cast your ballots, we wanted to also pick apart some big non-election related headlines of the week. But in some respects, are they all related? It was the week of the big groundbreaking on the new $4 billion Panasonic plant in Kansas. We are breaking ground on the largest economic development project in the history of our state. Now, we learned Panasonic was coming three and a half months ago. Is it just a coincidence that Governor Laura Kelly is holding the groundbreaking just before Election Day, no, Dave? Not a coincidence. So cynical, <laughs> Is there a shovel of dirt or a ribbon she has not cut or, <laughs> or an opening that she has not been a part of? That's a big part of her campaign, and mm-hmm. uh, this was timed, obviously, for that reason. Whether it resonates with voters in Garden City or... Salina or Wichita is an open question, but around here she got some play for it. Remember, though, that the, the opening of the Panasonic plant is actually a bipartisan accomplishment. It required cooperation from the Republican leaders of the Kansas legislature. It's been interesting to watch the ways that some of those legislative leaders uh, have distanced themselves from it so as not to give the governor a, a bigger credit. win in, in the campaign. But she was at the podium. Exactly. So she gets the credit for it. It happened during well, her she watch. Was just on weekend she review, was, so we know that's the <laughs> positive. Well, that's a, <laughs> well, and that is a prerogative of incumbency. Correct. For sure. <laughs> now, there was a striking business story topping our local headlines. As Cerner announces it's abandoning its North Kansas City World Headquarters building and selling off all its other real estate just weeks after it was bought by tech giant Oracle. They will shoehorn everyone into its building on the site of the former Bannister Mall. Now, given that Cerner is Kansas City's largest private employer. I was expecting this was going to be an explosive announcement, rather, with lots of horror-filled words and sobbing. But I was surprised this was met more with a collective shrug. Even the mayor of North Kansas City, who said he only found out about it on social media, says he was not shocked and was optimistic they would find someone else to make use of Cerner's 40-year-old building. So what is the biggest implication of this decision? And is it not such a big deal after all? Really, it's not. Uh, they got the tax credits here in Missouri, uh, in the Grandview area, and that, with that school district. People knew it was coming. I think people that work at Cerner knew it was coming. But it's interesting that the complex that they have on Bannister, down the street and around that uh, area, is a lot of development going on. They've got a lot of housing that they're building right down the street from there. So I figured that's where they would uh, 
move the move everybody into that place. And plus, it's brand new. It does have an impact in terms of reminding us once again the nature of office work is changing, and how how many people actually go to an office and work, yeah. and how you can support that going forward, and whether or not, and this is critical, Nick, whether or not government should be involved in the uh, business of incenting companies to build these headquarters without significant clawbacks if things go awry as they often do in these cases. So we need to pay attention to that and what implication it has for the entire region. Kansas City, we've talked about this before on this show, Kansas City really lacks major corporate uh, businesses. I mean, most other major metropolitan areas in this country have 3M or, or Anheuser-Busch. Or, Kansas City lacks that and the demise of Cerner, however you want to categorize it, is part of that story. Now, funeral services are this weekend for former Kansas City Mayor Charles B. Wheeler. <coughs> Several news reports pointed out that KCI Airport, Crown Center, the Truman Sports Complex, Kemper Arena, Bartle Hall, Worlds of Fun were all opened during his two terms in office that ended in 1979. Lynn, did Mayor Wheeler have a special power that other mayors did not have, or did he just happen to be there during the 1970s during a period of explosive growth? Well, I think it was partly luck. I think a lot of the planning for the airport had already been underway, but he was very energetic. He was incredibly engaged. He also um, had a bipartisan manner about him. As his mayor pro tem, he picked Dick Berkeley, who was a Republican on the Kansas City Council. I think he really uh, thought both parties should work together, and he fostered that atmosphere. Um, so, you know, he was very engaged. I interviewed him three years ago when he was 93 years old. He was still curious and incredibly interested. He was bursting with ideas. You know, he was, he was a, an old-style politician when, before politics was kind of a blood sport. <laughs> Not so, the kind of politician who could get elected today, then? He might. I mean, you know, he he was a doctor and a lawyer, a colorful, pers a colorful personality. Mm -hmm. He stuck out in a crowd. Everybody knew who Charlie Wheeler was. Uh, but politics has changed in Kansas City. The idea that the business community, however you define that, considered a room with Charlie Wheeler and Alex Petrovic and George Lear and conjure up a new sports complex or whatever, those days are gone forever. You have to be much more in tune with what neighborhoods want, what uh, people outside of City Hall want, and in that way, perhaps the kind of explosion we saw in the 70s will never happen again. By the way, Charlie Wheeler was 96. He died in an Overland Park-based nursing home. We offer our respects to his family and friends. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed. Thanks to Casey Lynn Horsley, and Brian Ellison. Always on call at the Kansas City Call, Eric Wesson, and the stars, Dave Helling. Next week, we pick apart what you told us at the ballot box and ask, what now? Until then, I'm Nick Haynes from all of us here at Kansas City PBS. Be well, keep calm, and carry on.